I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925 the first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. All right. Thank you, Ike Turner. Thank you, Rocket 88, the first rock and roll song ever created because he, he messed with the synthesizer. He, he altered the sound of the guitar. So it's uh, ironic that we play that song, isn't it, Emily? Very. Because this was the <laughs> first radio show on the Heritage Radio Network. A media source that takes food as a serious issue, not as a fashion, not as a trend. Food is serious. It encompasses all of the disciplines, agronomy, environmentalism, biology, chemistry, anthropology, sociology. It's all under the umbrella of gastronomy and food. So we need a real station, first rock song, first food show here so very excited i love that they did that uh, meet and three on microorganisms this week because uh, carlo petrini founder of slow food said we will form an international defense for microorganisms because if you pasteurize everything we will become sick and uh, it was a really a great line when he first started slow food so it's excited they're doing that we got a skeleton crew it's just me and emily in studio good morning don't forget this is the main course og patrick has yet to announce that part yes but, uh... Bad radio for ten years with host Patrick Martins. So uh, I like to stri- I like to get a C. That's what I that's what I'm always striving for. But we have very few uh, very few people in studio today, but very good people. So we have Evan Hanscore of Egg, and uh, say hi. So we know your voice. Hello. And Action Jackson Stamper of Employees Only. Welcome. How you doing? All right. So, so have you two ever met each other before? We have not just oh, just now. Because right. yeah, you guys late. seem not to yeah, like that's each why, other. That's why we showed up early, so we could we could. They showed up early. You. They sat on opposite sides of the studio. It's very tense between them, and we figured that there was bad blood or history. Well, that's nice to know. All right. Well, I'm I think it's just something about this studio that you know. Yeah, it's just bad people energy. aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> bad energy. Yeah. All right, we gotta like light, light some incense, do a little voodoo or that's, something. That's why we keep coming back. Yeah. All right. Well, welcome to the show, guys. We're really excited to have you on. Uh, we're gonna jump right into the weekly base. We do a roundtable format and talk about news of the week. We got a little a little promo music. 
So we're going to start a little serious. Uh, an estimated 97% of the U.S.'s 73 million hogs are raised in closed barns or confined feeding operations. In these systems, sows often live the majority of their lives in gestation or farrowing crates that don't allow them to get up or turn around. In this system, the average sow produces 23 and a half piglets per year or tenton per litter at a rate of 2.35 litters annually. But after two to four litters, most sows tend to be replaced by younger gilts who can produce piglets at a higher rate, which means they're just, they're done. Their life is over. This is not how the heritage system works. This is the commodity system. Thank you for confirming that. Yeah, I hope everybody knows. This was a piece that ran uh, partnership of Civil Eats and The Guardian this week. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, who wants to start? I mean, it's just depressing, really. Yeah, talk close to the mic. Don't forget, uh, but uh, yeah, it did. It, it's totally depressing, right? Yeah, it's just it's it's horrible to see. It's a it's a hard thing. I think America has a lot of problems with its relationships to food and where it comes from, and I, I think that's just a great example of it. Um, For me, it's like ninety seven percent. Just yeah. that number. I, I didn't even need to read the rest. The fact that ninety seven percent come out of this system. Yeah, it's it's an uphill battle. Right. For like what the work heritage is doing and chefs are trying to do. And I wonder like what percentage people would think are raised that way because so much of like marketing around food and especially like animals these days is about the idyllic pastured, whatever sort of scene. Yeah. And, and I'm sure people have a perception that like, yeah, maybe 50 or 30 or something Mm -hmm. percent are raised the bad way, but things are, things are good. You know, things are getting better. But it shows to goes to show how small the farmer's market of America mm-hmm. are. It's mm-hmm. still a very minuscule because I think all those pigs are being raised the correct way. So right. even with 26 green markets in New York and in San Francisco, right. the Ferry Plaza and Madison is famous for there. Even in Las Vegas, our friend Zach Allen helped start a farmer's market, a wholesale farmer's market for chefs. So it's still just a drop in the bucket. But, uh, you know, we mustn't forget. I mean, this just talks about uh, sows, you know, but really it's all the pigs that that suffer. So, I mean, just to confirm what scumbags, uh, you know, run the meat industry, um, you know, first of all, animals cannot speak. Yeah. And we forget that. So you're like, no, my dog likes being alone for nine hours. I'm like, because he can't tell you what a dick you are. You know, that's why <laughs> yeah. you, they can't speak. So when something can't speak, you really do have to spend extra time thinking about them. And then the other crime, and this is why Heritage started, was the genetics, right? Because it's actually their bread to grow that much you're not supposed to do 2.35 liters annually you're not supposed to grow yeah in in a third the time that a pig in nature grows that's what's messed up these animals are sick have you guys seen uh okja the movie on netflix i just watched it this week you just told me you don't watch movies i know i don't this is why (laughs) it's an anomaly and i don't know how it lined up so perfectly with our agenda today it's this gorgeous film i think it's made by like a chinese sort of surrealist uh filmmaker but it's a very sort of American style feature film in a way, but it's really beautiful, so upsetting, and it's basically kind of a story about this, um, told with enough sort of fantasy and distance to make it really hit home and not make people get defensive about about it. It's not how like do a, they make fantasy out of something like this? I mean, it's what, about these super pigs, oh. and they're raised at different. You know, they send them out to different rural farmers around the globe, and they bring them back for this big competition. But uh, and and it's all about sort of the marketing behind this and. Ultimately, it's you know, revealed that so it's like part a of a huge farm factory farm. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a movie that's kind of I think highlights the way that they try to give a good image to yeah. something terrible that they're doing. Mm. 
Yeah, you should watch. You should watch. But is the takeaway that we shouldn't be doing it that yeah, way? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. It's very clear that like this is fucked up, but um, it's told in like a pretty like personal way. Well, any any movie with pigs. I mean, Babe is a great pig movie, <laughs> and then there are also all these uh, famous pigs. Porky Pig. Who are the famous pigs? Ellen. Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let, come on. Let's there bring the, the female, the, the female favorites into the room. <laughs> no, I think, uh, well, now I have to see that movie for sure. Yeah. So thank you for the suggestion. But um, no, I, I don't know. It's I, terrible. We, we, we allow terrible things to happen. I mean, I always talk about fiscal Republicans. These are the good guys. These are the good Republicans who allow so much shit. They tolerate so much shit in their party mm-hmm. on their watch just for the fiscal. And we can't be that way. By the way, I had a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich this morning. And God knows where that freaking bacon came from. It was probably disgusting. Or and I egg. loved it. Or I loved it. But isn't that it? Isn't that like making the decision like when you go to a taco truck to not get the delicious carnitas because, the, you know, but I think all it's of it because of everything because of this, right? A slow turning of the wheel. It's not, you know, we're not Luddites. We're not like crazy. They don't ever, not yeah, at it's, all. And it's, it's driving it's a battleship. You, it takes a while to to make the whole thing It's turn. a slow turn. It'll yeah. always be. But as you say, 97%, that's a shit show. So. All right. I'm changing subjects. Let's talk thank Japan. You. Thank you. Uh, Evan, you just got back. Well, you visit often. I think you also just got back. Uh, we were curious. Why are the Japanese so fascinated with American breakfast? Egg has a location there. Our friends at Clinton Street Baking Company. I know Sarah Beth's has a location. I'm sure there's several others from yeah. the U.S. Yeah, there's, let's talk Japan. There's a bunch of American businesses there, but particularly food businesses. I mean, it seems like there's a fascination with American culture in general. Like, they love western sort of americana vibe really into a lot of the street fashion and um music scenes from over here as well but yeah there's a i don't know if it's been this way for a while or it's recent but there's definitely an interest in american food and i'm not sure why i mean we there's an interest in egg because we have a bunch of i think a bunch of japanese tourists who end up here in brooklyn so it's sort of but end up here in Brooklyn, there. and is it driven by social media? Or the and style it's like of the, your restaurant? I think they might end up here in Brooklyn because we're in a, a guide or something, or people on you know Instagram or friends at this point have recommended it. Um, but it's you know it's a totally the food exists in a totally different context there than it does here. Of course, you know here it's comfort, nostalgia, familiar, and there it's new and you know in, exotic in the way like a a new. Uh, restaurant from a different country is to us here so it's that's been really interesting to not be like comfort food breakfast but to be a, a different sort of thing in mm-hmm. that in that culture and, and i don't know lineup well i love japan it's so tiny <laughs> they can't go confinement agriculture because there's no room to do it <laughs> everything is so pristine and pure there i mean uh, every chef i ask What's your favorite cuisine? I just like saying, is it France? I would say 70% of them say Japanese mm. cuisine, what they do, the way they serve food and all that. Mm. I mean, are you fascinated by Japan? I'm hugely fascinated by Japan, and I, I think I do have a little insight as to why, they're, why they have such an obsession with uh, American culture. I think it goes back to... Um, they were one of the last countries to, to really allow foreigners into their country. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the late 1800s, I think, and they when they finally started to push to industrialize. And then they still remained fairly closed off. And then the war happened, World mm-hmm. War II. And we were the, we won, and so we occupied them. So we were mm-hmm. the first real culture that their citizenry got a, or citizenship got a, a, a look at. 
and I think ever since then they've they've kind of emulated it. And, and we showed them the way of like be. the scrambled egg or the over easy. <laughs> I don't know. Over easy. I mean, I think they just started to, to to it was so different for them. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was generations of not no contact with other cultures. Yeah. And then suddenly they're seeing a, a vastly different way of living because we just, we, our, culturally, we just can, couldn't be more opposite. Yeah. And so they just see it and they just, it's different. It's like when you're growing up and you, you want to do what's different from your parents or you want to do what's, so it's, when you see something different, you just want to explore it and check it out. And I think that has kind of pulled through all these years mm-hmm. with them for decades. So. Well, I'm a big fan of like the $20 bite you know, a $20 piece of sushi. I mm-hmm. think it's absolutely worth it, you know, yeah. just to get a raw thing that's dealt cheap, with perfectly. Yeah. Cheap sushi scares me. Oh, yeah. Like, I, will, I will say there's a ton of amazing cheap sushi over there. Over there, oh, it wouldn't there. scare me, but yeah. cheap sushi here in yeah, America, yeah. always, I'm just like, why well, would you Well, they don't have to fly it anywhere. Right. Just exactly. right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Emily, I'll tell you, when she takes a cruise, it's the raw fish at the buffet that she will never get near. She won't mm. even touch a, a spoon that's I ran there. into Evan, right? I think, right after I got off the cruise, and we yeah. were talking about the one you were going on, and I was like, the buffet is great. If it's a high-end cruise, the buffet is great. I'm like, but I... Octopus, I don't know. Right. right. Uh, that sort of cold station. <laughs> if you know you stopped in port to replenish, okay. Otherwise, I'm out. Yeah. But yeah. The Jap- Japan's crazy. Their Akayushi beef is like one of the best beef, the most marble beef. Then they get anchovies from Sicily. So Sicilians actually ship their anchovies to Japan because the Japanese demand the very best. Yeah. I love that idea. Slow food, by the way, was never about eating locally mm. unless gastronomically it tasted better. Mm. Carlo was shipping food from all over the world. If he could get a truffle from Siberia because it tasted better, if it even existed, he would. Because that's, that's how so interesting because for me, like the mental association with the snail is also that he wasn't traveling very far. He was just coming <laughs> right, local. Right. It just took him forever to get there. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't everyone know. gets ghost ends up in the same place anyway. So you might as well get there slowly. That was his line. You know, everyone's going to die. So, but anyway, yeah, Japan is absolutely fascinating. And my favorite Japanese restaurant, even though they stopped buying from us, so I hate them, but is <laughs> Morimoto. Because uh-huh. sometimes Japanese restaurants can be a little dire. We talk with our friend Cesare. He's like, I don't want to sit at a bar silent while some guy like has three little pieces. But Morimoto is fun and loud. I will sit there mm. silently if they do that thing where they like place it in your mouth. In your mouth? For the whole. <laughs> I want the full experience. So you, you want won't talk bird. while a chef is sticking something in your your mouth you're like i still have the floor hold on <laughs> pause please let's hold this conversation yeah exactly so um, um all right well uh I, I speaking of breakfast so you're a breakfast place which i find fascinating because you're viewed like we view union square cafe we think of you in the same really? way but you're closed Thanks. for dinner <laughs> no but i mean we don't think of you different you yeah. know just like we don't think of clinton street these are restaurants but um, so Evan, why not keep egg open for dinner? And Jackson, why not have employees only uh, open for breakfast and lunch? Why not do that? So yeah, why are you want me to take the lead? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, me personally, I mean, I've I've worked a lot of places before doing breakfast and lunch, and I, I personally just hate getting up that early. Uh-huh. But <laughs> what time would you have to get up to open for lunch, for instance, if you were opening? Chef? For lunch, I mean, you'd probably want the doors open by 11 a.m. So, so what time would you have to get there? I'd have to get there probably at like 9.30. So an hour and a half to prep everything? Just to make sure everything's in place, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to be there. As, as the person in charge, you got to be there pretty early to make sure if someone doesn't show up, you can cover it and handle it. Um, but 
that that's just my personal belief, but I also have a, I also feel strongly that that places kind of create their own individual identity, and, and sometimes it works in places, and sometimes it doesn't. We actually tried uh, a while back to do brunch at employees only, and it's just no no one was showing up. Mm-hmm. We have an identity as a, a late, late night, night bar. cocktail yep. bar, and and people don't associate that with going out early in the morning for brunch. Question, if someone doesn't show up, do you have backup guys who you've either fired before or who you haven't hired? <laughs> you don't, yeah, I mean... you just deal? I take a, it back. Yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> You're hired good, again. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty good rule of thumb that if you fire someone, you don't bring them back. Right, right. Uh, but, uh, no, it's usually it just falls on whoever is there. People just pick up slack. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's different for every operation. Sometimes you, you do have... Uh, guys that are kind of like your uh, mercenaries that come in whenever needed um that's always good to have in your back pocket but um for me i always prefer to just cross train everybody and, and i see so they're able to do each each position in mm-hmm. each job how many strikes does someone get for not showing up oh i think that all depends on how good they are at <laughs> on, on making up a story as to why they didn't show up i see i see yeah. all right yeah. <laughs> um yeah i think it's the same thing it's you know people we used to do dinner at egg for years and it was fine but it was never never felt like it was quite enough to make it worth everything that went into it I mean the hours the labor um, keeping things open the toll on the space uh, and people don't really want to eat breakfast where they eat dinner and vice versa you know Mm, hotels have this problem right and they're dealing with that in all sorts of ways they're trying to have multiple identities for spaces because people don't want to eat in the same space twice in, in a day or just associate that experience in a different sort of way. So we still do, you know, we do private events, we rent out the space, which is actually kind of perfect because we get the fun of cooking dinner every once in a while. We get to do some more creative stuff without the daily slog of doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, seven days a week, which it would be exhausting. Right. And it's you actually, crazy. as I recall, you do some... Book You do, you do a, a book club, right? Once yeah. a month? What's it called? Tables of Contents. Okay. Oh, very nice. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, we do, it's like a dinner series and a reading series. I was saving this for my uh, for well, later. Well, I was going to segue. <laughs> so you can tell us about it. And then going we'll, off se- script, we'll segue going into off our script. next topic. Go for um, it. Yeah, it's called Tables of Contents. And it started about maybe five or six years ago. We partnered up with the Food Book Fair to do a, like a closing dinner for their first uh, fair. Um, and we I had this idea to do dinners based on novels for a while because I studied writing in college so we did a dinner based off the sun also rises for that first uh first event and we did five courses each one was inspired by a different scene so we've done a number of those over the years uh and now we have a monthly reading series we have three authors come every month they read from a recent book or something that they're working on and we do a snack inspired by each of their readings and everyone gets a taste of it. so it's sort of like a a really involved um edible uh reading which is different than your normal bookstore sort of cool. affair yeah that's, i mean that's it's way more it sounds just way more sensory involved yeah like, yeah, yeah. and it breaks down a lot of the walls of like yeah. i'm sitting and looking at an author reading at me like everyone's sitting together at tables and you're chatting with whoever's next to you they might get up unbeknownst to you and be the next reader you know yeah. it's like do the three fun. have to link in some way is there a theme for the night or no i mean the theme is food and you, we find it in everyone's books, even the people who I reach out to and are like, ah, I'd love to, but there's no food in my books. Like, trust me, there's, <laughs> there's, there's food. food in your books. We'll figure <laughs> That's it so out. That's so fun. You yeah. get to be a curator of like whatever you're reading at that moment that resonates that you think would people want to get together in a yeah. room. It's like my backdoor 
you know, as a former writer, like my back door into the world of writers that I wouldn't have been able to access through writing skill alone. <laughs> right, right, right. That's good. Well, let's talk cookbooks and bookshops. So, yeah, exactly. The East Village. So we were just reading. There's a new one. There's a new one. The East Village has Bonnie Slotnick. Uptown has Kitchen Arts and Letters. Greenpoint has Arkstratus Books and Food. And we just read that there's a new one opening in Cobble Hill right. uh, later this month on DeGraw Street. Bookseller cool. Elizabeth Young is opening Cooking Cocktails. For both of you here. Okay, and culture. Okay. Uh, they're going to carry rare cookbooks, new books, and collectible items. Uh, we, Patrick and I were talking about this yesterday. Like, Barnes & Noble used to be the enemy of bookstores. Now it's one of the last remaining holdouts <laughs> and a purveyor of many cookbooks. Um, so we know everyone wants to write a book. I think Egg has a book, right? We've got a book. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys still buy physical cookbooks? Do you like to go to these stores? Obviously, like, Evan, we know your connection now. Can I say I want to murder the cookbook industry? The last thing the world needs is another fucking cookbook. <laughs> Do you know what a waste of paper it is? There's a gazillion cookbooks. They come up with 5,000 cookbooks. I think I would like one encyclopedia on ingredients, mm. you know, that just come And that's it. That's just stop with the cookbooks. You could build a Mount Everest of cookbooks. It's too much. I don't care if people buy it or not. I'm just obviously <laughs> playing devil's I advocate. I hope no future guest of ours who comes on to talk about a cookbook has heard this episode. It better be original <laughs> if it's yeah. a cookbook. Come on. Yeah. I don't know. That's just I'm playing devil's advocate, but uh, the world needs another. But cookbook. what about, what about the, the old? Trees? Okay, but so this new shop and, as, the and, and the, oh what about God. books? You don't want books anymore? <laughs> oh, I like books. Another cookbook. <laughs> I don't think is, the cookbooks are destroying trees. I do think there's like there you get a couple you know out of the hundreds or whatever cookbooks that come out every year. What you have to be five yeah. to ten max. Okay, are, are like, great. Really good. So I, I totally agree. I think we don't need another Inspiralizer cookbook or another juice book or, you know, yeah. even even lots of lots of books about, you know, specific cultural food are repetitive. But, you know, sometimes like I felt like salt, fat, acid, heat was kind of a, a new thing and, and really useful for so many people. I've given it to tons of people as uh, as gifts. And it's like folks who aren't cooks who might be intimidated by the format of some cookbooks are like oh this is new like i get this so once in a while i think something I yeah know. what does a cookbook do like to break your mind you're like oh that's a way to cook vegetables that i never thought of or he has a new perspective on combinations of flavorings yeah that I, never I think saw. sometimes it's like maybe a culture you're not familiar with the food with that hasn't had a lot of attention before like i would say the most recent cookbook that i bought that i really enjoyed was the asuka cookbook um, it's just a different perspective on food. I'm not, I'm a more of a traditionalist. And so when I see someone like that doing things that are very out of the box, it's, it's just intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, do you also buy a book maybe because of the chef who wrote it? Like, is it that you want a, a better sense or lens into their style? If you've never staged with them, if you've never been in their kitchen, does that translate? Does Sometimes. That I mean, for me, it's, it's, I mean, I just, I like Evan, I love books and I grew up reading and I loved writing. Um, and we I, knew this. I, That's why we put you together, yeah. of course. Sneaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, but for me, I just like, it's usually just a personal feel. I, I'll go to bookstores sometimes and I'll just, if I see a cookbook I haven't seen before, I'll pick it up and browse through it. And if it's if things in it are actually catching my eye, then I might purchase it. If not, then I'll just put it back. If it, if it just, if you open it and it looks like a bunch of stuff you've seen before, I just put it back. Do you um, cook off recipe books ever? Like at the restaurant when you're testing out new kitchens, you're like, I'm going to make the egg version of this or the employees only I, yeah, version. Absolutely. Of that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's a great place to like, you know, you might not cook the exact same recipe, but inspiration browsing through and seeing something like, oh, that's, I want to do something like that. Or this is somehow fills out the beginnings of an idea I had about something else. It's just different than going online and searching for a specific recipe or, or whatever. It's like, there's a whole story being told there. And, um, you know, there are things, there are recipes you find in cookbooks that you're not going to find online for whatever reason. And, and you're, path to discovering them is totally different it just yeah. more feels i don't know i, I do love the story around a lot of the dishes and cookbooks i think mm-hmm. the best cookbooks give an intimate personal give us story. give us two cookbooks guys so i mean uh one two cookbooks that you're or the one that's dirtiest on your shelf passion. i don't know what do you, what's your your favorite um man, i can't remember the name of the book but sean brock's book heritage yeah yeah um i i dive into that one pretty often just to look at stuff what does it offer you like a southern take on cuisine yeah i mean i'm from florida so and so yeah it's a it's a book that's not your typical martha stewart view Mm -hmm. of southern food Mm -hmm. or um so i I like to to see that and just to see what he's done and his passion for food and his story behind why he likes using the ingredients that he likes to use he has a restaurant in nashville right and then yeah and then uh Uh, charleston charleston yeah well, I mentioned salt, fat, acid, heat, which I think is awesome. I go back to the Bar Tartine cookbook a lot because they just have like really interesting preservation techniques. And my first kind of cookbook that I cooked from was in college. It's called Roast Chicken and Other Stories by Simon Hopkinson. Mm-hmm. And that I was captivated by the the writing. It like it, You just want to read this as if it were a book because mm-hmm. the stories behind all the recipes are great. And I think that's what was my entry into like, oh, now I'll try actually cooking what's in here. Mm-hmm. Well, I love books that talk about technique and all that because I think like with our meats, which are a little bit more expensive, uh, I think people put so much effort into these like two-day braises that it, it, it's not quick food, but it should be. Like our pork chops should be so sometimes I think slow food is fast food. You can grill a pork chop in five minutes, and if that you know could still be heritage. But I think when people have that heritage chop, they're like, "Oh no, mm-hmm. I need to find a cookbook for this. I'm going to do this whole part of things." So it ceases stuff, yeah. to become part of the everyday, part of the quotidian culture heritage breed. So sometimes some books are like that. But mm-hmm. I, of course, like you, Emily, I'm sure rely on Tyvon's French cookbook from the 13th century as my go-to. Oh, but of course. <laughs> yeah. of course. But it's really fun to read that book. I, I read it a little bit in French, a little translated. They didn't have time. A lot of people didn't have time. So he's like, cook this roast for as long as it would take to walk around a big field seven or eight <laughs> times. That's like literally what they write. I feel so. like Patrick's cooking style is more of that verbal cookbook where you've talked to chefs that you respect, friends over the years, whether it be like Alice Waters or Angelo Garo, someone who's going to say, this is, or... Um, who was Zach Allen has his method for I don't know I think he how he likes to do a chop and a certain mm-hmm. amount of searing time versus resting and you I mean you're fortunate enough to work with chefs every day who you learn their techniques no I like to say everything I cook is medieval so if oh. I'm ever blamed for <laughs> churning out a shitty dish I'm like they had different palates back then <laughs> you just aren't refined enough <laughs> You don't know. You're so yeah. new age. Yeah. Also, I mean, by, like discovering used cookbooks is the best. Like true. I was in Housing Works the other day and found this cookbook that I'm not gonna be able to read because it's all in French. But it's called Champignon, and it's like has these amazing pictures of foraged mushrooms that are better than like in the mushroom identification book I have at home. So like, okay, this is a, a great resource, and it has mm-hmm. recipes for what to do with them. You just um, need a translator now. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> when I went into Kitchen Arts and Letters, I was writing my master's thesis for performance studies at NYU on medieval food sculptures and the politics of medieval food sculptures and how the nobility would use food sculptures as a means to put messages into the food to like either inspire people to go on a crusade or to not conquer them. I mean, Catherine de Medici stopped wars by throwing huge parties that were so much fun, no one wanted to conquer them. And I remember going into Knack Waxman being like, hi, uh, you know, I'm some pimply faced grad student being like, hey, I'm looking for medieval food sculpture books. He's like, follow me. <laughs> and, you know, shows me 30 books in that little place on Lexington Avenue, 92nd mm -hmm. Street. And it mm -hmm. is awesome. People should absolutely support those types of things. But they should think off the beaten path. I mean, yeah. they should look to old books, not to the so newest. Well, and I think that's what's special about shops like this and to see that another one is opening. Awesome. Because otherwise, you know, you can go online for every, you know, current recipe. Mm -hmm. But to, to find things that are older, collect, I mean, they're copyrighted. A lot of things are not making it to the web unless someone's, you know, taking a picture of a book and uploading it on a blog somewhere. But I think that's really special. And the experience of being there and learning from people who have their own stories to tell. So speaking of new and old, let's well then we'll come back to the coffee one. What's the most original thing you've done in the kitchen, food wise? Like uh tombstone quality for the, like original or obit, you know? Tombstone? Like, what would be written on your tombstone that oh, you did you the know, most? I thought you were talking about the pizza. pizza yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, were they the first frozen pizza? Get or your mind out of the gutter. No, just kidding. No, but like, what's the most original thing you've done? I wouldn't call it a tombstone thing, but I think probably before I was at Employees Only, I was at a place uh, with a guy who taught me a lot, Chef Carlos Burroughs uh, restaurant in uptown called um, La Pulperia. Pulperia, yeah. And uh, he has a a kind of signature dish uh, called Paku ribs, and it's this fish from the Amazon that's basically like a really large piranha, hmm. uh, but it's vegetarian. And so he actually cooks it uh, on a grill, and he cuts them into, like, they look like spare ribs. It's actually the ribs of the fish. This fish has just got ribs that are out, uh, outrageously big for a fish. Um, and he just does it like barbecue style. So it's hmm. fish, barbecue, ribs. Hmm. Um and that was, I'd never even heard of that thing before. And I was like, where did you even find this? <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, I mean, egg is pretty comfort food driven. We do some, you know, cool stuff with food waste and like using up byproducts. But I think the sort of, the where I get my conceptual creative kicks is in like tables of contents and doing things that are sort of abstract interpretations of a, of a scene in a book, for example. Like we did a dinner with a, with a writer named Heidi Julevitz uh, and this artist collaborative called The Bellwether that was all around the theme of decay. So every course was uh, some interpretation or example of decay and there were interactive sort of elements throughout the night that Heidi came up with um, about time and memory and, and loss and all of that, of that was tied into the food. So like those sorts of how do you take you know, art and, and food and, and bring them into conversation, mm. that's the stuff that's, I think, sort of original for us and, and exciting, like creatively for me. That's awesome. Well, for me, it would be <clears throat> having no talents, really, other than being able to like throw grapes high in the air and catch them in my mouth. I, I came up with uh, the, the words tetoir, 
which is what chefs pass on. It's the terroir of the brain. Mm. Tet being French for head, so it's skills and knowledge passed from the brain and the hands from master to apprentice. I think there was no real word for mm. your guys' genius. Everyone was talking about the food, but it was really you guys carrying on secrets mm. of the trade. Carpenters have terroir. And then, then another word is, this was for Anne, but uh, that little bit of cheese that's not the rind and not the cheese, it's that little beach of cheese. And in French, beach is plage. So plage du fromage. Nice. So those are my <laughs> only two original things in food. I can't follow that up. No, All right. I'm out. So tell us about coffee. All right. So uh, we re- I read this week that uh, Italy's beloved mocha pots are in danger of going extinct. An icon of design, the mocha pot was patented by Alfonso Bialetti in 1933 and became synonymous with making coffee in places like Italy and Cuba. Hmm. You know it. It's that silver coffee pot you put on the stove and, in my case, sometimes accidentally melt off the handle. Mm-hmm. It's happened more than once. <laughs> Supposedly, 70% of Italian families own a mocha pot, and yet we are hearing that the company has filed for bankruptcy. Analysts say ground coffee sales are declining and the pod capsule espresso sales are going up. What form of coffee do you guys drink? Do you have a mocha pot? Do you make your own espresso? Are you brand loyal? This is that pot, right? It's the two upside down things that screw together. Well, the one and where, it has a little holder. in my mind, why would you ever put the coffee grounds on the bottom? And how is your coffee going to end up at the top? Right. Yeah, that one. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Uh, I mean, I just go to local coffee shops. and pretty brand loyal little variety. I've lived next to it the entire time I've lived in New right. York. So I've just never really con elsewhere but i if i'm somewhere else i always try to go somewhere local that's using like a local roaster or something like that mm-hmm. um and then i mean as far as the mocha pot goes i feel like that like those things never break mm-hmm. unless you melt the handle mm-hmm. off mm-hmm. Right. yeah so that's what i was thinking you could, like, like kill they, someone with one of those are things, they going like, out of business because it lasts forever like it's the cast iron pan that you know yes. lodge sells you one when you're 20 and you have it until you die yeah even unless I mean, you've rusted it and 70 percent of italian families have them they're probably all from like 1920 yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so that's my only theory is like is it too good of a product and you have one and you pass it down you know my mm-hmm. mother-in-law is cuban and she just likes to buy things for all of us so we each have one of them but uh i don't know like are they yeah. just they don't need to yeah, be replaced. Does the capsule deserve to have kicked this out of the business? Does it make no, a comparable like coffee? No. No. I don't Caps- like the cap. Capsule's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> can I say that on Harry's Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Not about the capsule. You can say bullshit. <laughs> okay, all you okay. Want. okay. Sorry. <laughs> Harry's just sponsored by the capsule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Um, we we have a I have an espresso machine at home only because Rachel, my uh, fiance's uh, mom, used to be a copywriter and she used to work for Ely. So she had like old, like a free espresso machine that she gave us a long time ago. And it makes, pre- it makes pretty good coffee. So like that or French press at home. Um, but but I, what coffee do you use? And are you loyal to like, are you using Ilili coffee? No, no. We use, so usually I just buy coffee from egg because it's much cheaper. So right now <laughs> we're using, uh, we have a blend with Brooklyn Roasting and then we're getting a a blend from Devotion um, as well for our French press at the restaurant. So I use those. Um, sometimes I bring coffee back from Japan because they have really cool stuff that I've never seen here before. Mm-hmm. But just as often I'll go to a local coffee shop because especially if I have a day off, I don't often want to be in my house. I want to get out 
have a coffee, be somewhere, see people, you know. I like uh, I like uh, cheap coffee, actually, just like deli coffee. The taste of it I like better. But I will say this is yet another example of Italy losing out on a business that it should dominate. I mean, yeah. when Starbucks opened in America, you were like, Italy, you're such a mess. Why don't you have anything here? Why don't you have a chain or nothing? I mean, Italy and Lavazza are well known, but not because they exist a shit ton, just because I think people see it at a few different high-end restaurants. But, you know, they should own the espresso business. They should own the Starbucks, you know, business. But somehow they're just so ideological or whatever just bad at business that they they lost out and here's yet another espresso machine going out of business when it shouldn't it's true i don't know but i like i guess it's bad to say i like pete's coffee they're out of uh, mm. seattle also um and i don't put them on the same level as starbucks just because they don't have shops everywhere at least not on the east coast um i just don't like any coffee that's super acidic like i don't really like the pre-done cold brews either like they're just I don't know. Did you ever see a best in show where the two people who had the worst, the gray dog, were like, we met at Starbucks that were kitty corner to each other. I was at one Starbucks and I looked across the street to the other (laughs) Starbucks. Yeah, too many of them. Anyway, so take us to our last story. Should we go to the uh, break already? Yeah, let's go to a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more with uh, Jackson Stamper and Evan Hanksor. Is that how I say your name? Eh. We'll fix it at the break. All right, all right. (laughs) Stick around. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has a superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T, dot com slash hrn to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals hrn listeners will get 20 percent off off the new le creuset cookbook with the code hrn all right oh wow sorry guys so loud we're back this is the uh the main course og broadcasting live on heritage radio network from roberta's in bushwick brooklyn sponsored by le creuset the nicest pots in the world i guess i shouldn't have mentioned lodge before i'm so sorry le creuset yes buy one le creuset you have it forever (laughs) uh we have here with us uh evan from egg evan hanzor and yeah i gave up (laughs) and uh jackson stamper from employees only um we have some questions for the weekly grill but first of all it's November, holidays, do's, don'ts. Are you guys open? Are you closed? Christmas, New Year's? How's We're that work? Close Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and that's it. Is that like for your own sanity, for, for your for your employees? Like Yeah, mostly for our own sanity, for arbitrary acknowledgement of holidays that we choose to value. <laughs> Jackson? 
Uh, we're open for Thanksgiving. We do a special menu, um, and then we're closed for Christmas Day, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, and then the Smart. one yeah, and then the first Monday of December when we do our Prohibition Repeal Day party. Um, but then New Year's, you're certainly open. Oh yeah, we're very we're open every other day of the week, seven days a week. Um, but uh, the Thanksgiving's an odd one just because we used to be closed for Thanksgiving, and then years back, um, the old chef, uh, Chef Julia Joksik, held a special dinner for everyone that worked there, and while they were there, the phones just kept ringing, and the owner decided, we should be open for Thanksgiving. <laughs> so That's she, cool. she ruined it for all the other employees. <laughs> 10, to, 10 to 12 to 15 heritage turkeys a year, every year, employees only since 2004. I thought Jackson was just eating them himself. I didn't know you were actually oh, he's open. A, he's a thin guy. That's awesome. <laughs> If it yeah. was me, you could say that. But all right, Evan, how does Egg Tokyo compare to Egg New York? Give us the differences. Well, the menu is almost the same. We don't bring, we don't have Nancy's ham over there, but we or ship, heritage or bacon. heritage bacon, which we need to talk about. Um, if you guys want to start working in Japan, mm-hmm. that would be great. Sixteen um, slabs a week. Yeah, is that we, a pallet? We, we need it. Um, but the menu is is egg and they do a great job you know they serve grits we get anson mills grits over there we have a great egg farmer in hiroshima how did you get the bacon just out of interest you just visited some local meat distributors and said this one tastes similar yeah they brought samples in from different you know providers and we're like this is as close as i think we're going to get and it's not the same you know but um just like any restaurant you know we're a year and a half old we're actually opening the second tokyo location tomorrow mm. um but we're making like improvements i think as we go so hopefully by next year the bacon will be a little bit better and maybe the greens will be a little different and but everything's the same pretty much Over i mean you, easy, you walk in and it feels like egg they even built like a a faux skylight so it feels like the back room <laughs> in the egg space now but it's it's really uh, kind of surreal to go to tokyo get off the plane go to the part uh, you know an apartment and then walk over to egg and feel Almost like we're back in Brooklyn, although it's newer and cleaner because it's a newer and cleaner restaurant. Is it more it's expensive? It's also Japan. It's also, it's also Japan. <laughs> yeah. More expensive, same price. It's about the same price uh, in like American dollars, but relative to food there, it is more expensive than you know an eight dollar bowl of sure. ramen for lunch. Sure. So now, Jackson, uh, you're the chef of a cocktail-focused restaurant bar. Does that impact on your cooking and the menu? Uh, it does in ways, but not in uh, negative ways, I don't think. Um, there's both uh, more freedom and less freedom. I would say that you, I uh, keep it more traditional. You can't really get as crazy as you could in a place that's more food-centric, food-focused. Uh, but at the same time, I'm able to use products and um, make things that maybe I wouldn't be able to make otherwise because the be the bar being so popular gives me a, a bit more cost room to work with. Um, are there people who come in just to drink, or do you get most people who are drinking have to, you, have to you eat? Have you been in our, yes. our bar post 10 o'clock? Uh, not recently. <laughs> I, I Somehow I must have the early bird special. It takes 15 <laughs> minutes to walk from the door to the restaurant. To get ba- down that bar takes 15 it minutes. Was like, it was like that on the way out the we're, other Yeah, day. we're about 80-20, so it's about 80% just drinking. Okay. Yeah. So on that note... Is there a specific, we had a question for both of you. We know salty foods get people to drink more. Is there a specific item on your menu that translates into drink sales? Um, uh, I mean, for the people in the dining room, you're trying to up their check average the a little peanut, bit, maybe? The, the peanut from the kitchen, the salty <laughs> food that gets people to drink. Uh, we're pretty well known for our tartare. 
which is a nice little Where they do salty it there track. for you, yeah. Yeah, it's a salty snack. And then uh, also we do a bacon-wrapped lamb chop. Um, oh, I love that lamb chop. Yeah. That's so those, been on forever. Those are the two that I think are, are snackable and, and also good to eat at the bar that will get that probably get people drinking a little oh, bit. Also, you can, hold a, li- you can hold a little lamb chop when you're like three people deep at the bar. <laughs> yeah. And then late right. night we do french fries, so... Oh, really? People, not during the day? I mean, not during the early part of the no, day? No, we, uh, we switch menus at midnight. What kind of fry is it? Uh, it's just like a kind of thin. Um, yeah thin thin cut fry. We do a parmesan fry and then we do a uh, garlic fry and a rosemary fry. So oh is God. the have to drinking at egg tiny? I mean, is everybody just drinking Brunch. coffee? Yeah, or? people have mimosas and bloody marys, but you know it's not like a we don't sell a lot of wine. We don't sell that much beer. Um, but people will come in. We get a decent amount of tourists. They'll come and have a beer for, with lunch during the week. But I think for breakfast. You know, the sausage is, is one of those saltier items that people tend to get as a side with grits and eggs that could make you want to order an extra mimosa. And, and the country ham biscuit. Of course, the country ham is salty and smoky and everything, and it, it needs a washing down. So, But it's a challenge, right, to, to make it financially without a large Yeah, we don't have alcohol. that cushion of a bunch of breakfast. food sales. Exactly. So but diners are hugely expensive. I mean, even shitty diners that I love. It's true. You don't think about that. They're very expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a cheeseburger at Nectar Coffee Shop on the Upper East Side costs like $19. Right. And it's Which is like more special. than our burger, you know, cost, yeah. cost at egg. So yeah, it's it's definitely a different a different uh, numbers game to play. Like keeping things, lo- you know, affordable because it's breakfast and we want it also to be affordable for people. Um but not, not having those those boost sales to, to bump it up. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have uh, two more questions. I'll ask Jackson's, you ask Evans, last two. So Jackson, everything around you in the West Village is like from the 19th century. Like Dylan Thomas died at a bar there. You know, you have all this stuff going on. It's like the foundation of the uh, Stonewall, right? Mm-hmm. It was a movement there, all this like history there. And then you guys were like new kids on the block. And now looking at gastronomy and and food culture you're dinosaurs now i mean you're one of the very <laughs> first so what's that like i mean you're kind of an institution in a museum-like neighborhood in new york yeah uh it can be pr- pretty interesting i think one of the things that i love about it about the longevity that we've had there and um the things that you get to see is uh pretty much i would say 10 times a year we'll have someone call and be like hey uh, i met my fiance at your bar we're getting married can we come by can we do pictures can we have dinner and that's just like a super cool thing to be a part of and to see it happen so often because we've been open for so long is really cool um and then it's just being that name in the industry is 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 uh really honoring um it's just it's it's nice you're, you're, you're viewed as a cocktail founder right? i mean you were one of the first times where the bartenders were like awesome Good-looking They guys, wear chef jackets. Chef jackets, <laughs> and the menu was 30 pages long. I mean, you were a real pioneer, right, in the city? Uh, as far as, like, the speakeasy cocktail scene goes, yeah. Uh, they were one of the one of the early ones, along with people like Julie Reiner, um, and then places like PDT and uh, Milk and Honey and stuff mm-hmm. like that, yeah. They old were, school. Yeah. So quickly, you talk, so you're going from old school West Village to the uh, glitz and bright lights of Las Vegas. <sighs> Uh, yeah, that's right. I am. I'm moving to Las Vegas, not a place typically associated with age. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the plan for there? Is it going to be a, a speakeasy? You're uh, saying my you're wife opening and I are wife. opening a bar, so it's going to be kind of an adult dive bar in the front and then a very fancy upscale cocktail bar in the back. Uh, it's going to be called Mr. Wednesdays. 
Awesome. On the strip or off the strip? Off the strip. Arts district. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. When will you be open? When can we visit? Oh, that's... Uh, we're hoping for spring. Yeah. Maybe late spring, April, May. All right, off Pat. the strip is great. Yeah. I think maybe 15, 20 years ago it was not. There were just a few kind of ethnic restaurants that were maybe fantastic, but now it's really, really cool. We, we, we're lucky enough. Yeah, to no, off up. the strip is, is tourists are going off the strip. Locals mm. are going off the strip. People want more things that take them away from Las Vegas Boulevard. So I think that's the way to go. All right, Evan, I know you're very devoted to upstate New York. You work with Glenwood. You have a farm. Tell us a little bit about upstate New York. Well, we, we started the farm at Egg about 10 years ago, and the goal was to sort of solidify that connection between the food buyers, us consumers in the city, and the people producing that food upstate, and, and not be so sort of distant from from that uh, that transaction. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're we're way not way up, but we're up about two and a half hours, almost three hours north of the city in Greene County. And then um, I have ended up doing a lot of work with Glenwood, which is an ag nonprofit and farm that operates mostly in the Hudson Valley area, um, supporting local farms, land access, sharing knowledge, testing ideas on their property, working with industries like the cider industry to try to provide, you know, more uh, feasible revenue streams for apple orchard, you know, um, farmers up there. So yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. I grew up in Connecticut, which is uh, just just across the border from the agricultural region of the Hudson Valley, you know, and up into the Catskills. So the landscape and the vibe and the, the, the people are all very familiar. Um, so it feels it feels like a return when I go there. And of course, it's so central to the way we order and cook food at Egg that it feels important to actually be physically involved in it as well. Awesome. Well, very cool. We uh, thank you both for coming on. Yes. We recommend that everyone visit Egg here in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Employees only in the West Village. And E-O. then... EO and EO. then uh, come spring 2019 out to Vegas for Mr. Wednesdays. Yes, we'll have us out. Will you? Will you? Uh, can we send you samples like a prosciutto and salamis and stuff that you we can sell? send me anything you want? Okay, good, good. <laughs> he as would long never. As there's refuse. not an invoice. Along yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tickets are now on sale for the winter. Uh, Winter in the Garden, Heritage Radio Network's holiday party and tasting. It's on Monday, December 3rd in the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. 6 p.m. is the VIP reception. That's really where you want to be. And 7 p.m. is where everyone else comes. Celebrate another epic year in food radio and help Heritage Radio Network get off to a strong start in 2019. It's our 10th anniversary, so it's going to be really exciting. There's going to be a VIP hour, taste your way around the Palm House, wine, beer, sake, silent auction, raffle prize and musical stylings from host DJ Cherish the Love. Tickets are available at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. Stick around for Tech Bites up next at 11. Thanks, Noam, for engineering such a stellar show. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Black convertible top and the gals don't mind. Scoring with me riding on.